Hello and welcome to the latest Guernsey Green Finance podcast. Guernsey as a jurisdiction has made a significant commitment to sustainable finance and as part of that we have a programme of educational engagement and we have that, this Green Finance podcast series where we speak to and learn from some of the leading figures globally in the sustainable finance field. My name is Dr Andy Sloan, I'm Deputy Chief Executive at Guernsey Finance and I lead our strategic initiative Guernsey Green Finance and today I'm delighted to be joined by Oliver Gregson, uh, Chief Executive of the JP Morgan's private bank in the UK. He's um, certainly a leading figure in the field. He's a luminary of luminaries. He's on the governance committee of the Corporate Foundation for JP Morgan. He's a council member of the Sustainable Markets Initiative. He's a member of the Sustainable Private Banking Strategic Initiative of UK Finance, trustee of Blue Ventures, trustee of Health for Heroes. Uh, Oliver, need I say more? It's a delight to be joined by you today. How are you? Dr. Sloan, hello, hello. That was a that was a very generous introduction of of uh, of you. Uh, great to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, it was worth getting it right, Oliver, because it's it's one uh, it's one very impressive background. And one of the first sort of questions I like to ask uh, uh, sort of my um, sort of fellows uh, on on the podcast series is how they've gotten into. Uh, green and sustainable finance. I've, there's a bit of a common theme I've discovering, or I am discovering, that, that's developing here. That people's commitment tends to be, it's not just for Christmas. This sustainable finance thing, is it? So perhaps you could tell us a little bit of how you got here. Yeah, I, um, it's an it's an interesting one. It, it's, I mean, for me, for me, Andy, it started really when I was um, studying at, at university. I. Uh, started my um, university studies in in the nineties, the late nineties, when GMOs was, you know, really sort of um, front and center of of the media and and a really interesting emerging you know area of of, of science. And um, I studied environmental biology. I, I majored in on the ethical issues as it related to the use and application of GMOs. Was was very lucky to to study underneath. Uh, a gentleman called Professor Don Grierson, um, who um, uh, was was um, creative enough uh, to come up with the the first genetically modified, commercially viable food crop called the Flavor Saver uh, Tomato, which was in conjunction uh, with Syngenta at the time, uh, and that really um, got the interest uh, going. Uh, fast forward. 20 odd years in in uh, financial services and and fortuitously that that interest has, has grown to become a, a passion and and financial services is is now finally catching up to enable that that passion to to really be expressed i, I mean you get one gets to a point andy in their in in their life i suspect where you start to sort of you know ask yourself what's your why with purpose and, and meaning and and what's it all about not to get too deep and philosophical we're barely two minutes in but um i think that the this is really where the sort of personal passion that finds an avenue to to express itself for me um the, the environmental element of esg and sustainability is probably the area of, of greatest personal interest and time is 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 running out and i sort of made a commitment myself to to not be really passive on this agenda i've got two young children and and uh, I find myself asking, you know, what planet and society am I going to leave behind for them? What world are they going to grow up into? And, and what's been fantastic really about the last few years is that personal passion and, and interest to, to make a difference has, has now combined, you know, with the professional necessity. And fortuitously, I feel like I have a, a platform in the role that I have to, to try and 
um, or that enables me to, to make a difference, to accelerate some of the change that, that's needed and, and to play a part in, in trying to ensure we, we create a much more safe, secure and sustainable you know, future for, for, for all of us. Um, so that's, that's probably a, a bit of the background of how I've, I've come to this. Um, and it's a really interesting time for the sector, for the industry, for the public, you know, the, the, mm -hmm. the awareness around a lot of this, Andy, is, is, um, is, is really growing and growing fast, which is fantastic. That's oh, really interesting, Oliver. It's nice to. It's always nice to have something in common with uh, we speaking to, and it's sort of the the interest in biotech and the, oh, the, 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 the the touching of biotech in the nineties because it certainly was big back then. And it's like a, it's it's amazing to think how these things have a, a you know a through the cycle sort of like shelf life. But passion is something that you sort of mentioned many times there, and I, I again it's something that I completely agree with in terms of bringing a passion to the workplace and bringing a passion uh, to one's life and to one's work is something that's really really. I think it's really, really fortunate to be able to do. And it, passion itself was something that definitely came away when I was watching you recently on the um, the JP Morgan's Investable Summit series. Uh, I remember you hosting the big day with um, with Mark Kearney there. And it was it was great to listen to him and it was great to listen to you indeed. One fact that when watching that struck me at the time was the comments, and I can't remember who made it now, but by 2050, you know, if we carry on as we are, demand for the Earth's resources will be overusing the Earth's capacity by some 400%. I find that astonishing. But, um, you know, that and, and other things, what, for, for you, from the perspective of the host of that day, what did you take away? What was, what was the key issues that you learned from that event? Yeah, um, it was it was a great event, and and um, you know thank you for for um, bringing it up, and and it, great you were able to make it, Andy. The, the this was you know born out of um, a bit of the context that that, that I alluded to, um, both in in a personal you know role to to try and bring together like like minded you know individuals to leverage the convening and network effect of an organization like JP Morgan and, and to try and um, coalesce around, you know, the, the, the need and, and drive the change. So in 2019, we held our first sustainable investment summit. Um, we had 150 odd attendees from around the world. Uh, and it was a fantastic event called From Theory to, to Practice. The idea really from this year was to, to very much build on, on that because a lot of the polling and research that we've done shows that some 74% um, of our clients and, and attendees and, and delegates want to invest sustainably, Andy, but they didn't know how or where to start. So the notion really of mm -hmm. 2020 was to, to make sustainable investing a reality, to build on 2019, to to show them where to start and and how to do it with you know JP Morgan as their as their as their partner it was a it was a fantastic event I, um, I'm thrilled you thought that too um, the digital um, environment that we all operate in today um, meant of course we had to come at it from a from a very different different angle um, and it was fantastic to have it timed very close to some really great news that that JP Morgan's made I think that's really starting to, to drive us to the to the front in terms of the corporate commitments towards sustainability in ESG because shortly after the summit finished we announced our new commitment to align our financing mm -hmm. to to um, uh, the Paris uh, you know the Paris agreement um, and the feedback was was you know has been really you know has been really strong and, and 2020 in many ways Andy I think that that's what's been most interesting and probably you know the thing I took away most from the event is that 
Extinction Rebellion, Greta, demographics and other things have, have, have really driven probably more at the E over the last 18, 24 months. But I think at its very core, the impact of the global pandemic is a health and societal crisis and, and people are starting to demand change mm. and the, the societal elements, Black Lives Matter, Me Too, combined with the, the amplification effects of, of COVID is really, I think, putting ESG and sustainability right at the very top of the agenda. And, and we focused on um, three areas. We, we had um, a section on climate solutions, a section on diversity, and, and a section on the circular economy. And, and I, I guess key, maybe one or two key takeaways just to close from, from each of those. I mean, I think on, on climate, it is clear that the reality that we are heading towards is very concerning. Uh, IPCC talks about one and a half degrees. The reality is we're heading towards three and a half degrees. Yes, yeah. And the, the impact of that, the consequences are, are I think, genuinely uh, stark and, and, and distressing. So, you know, we all need to incorporate thinking about climate solutions into business strategies, into day-to-day -day activity, and, and the risks and opportunities in, in, in that are, are paramount from a diversity perspective um you know it, it was really interesting to hear the, the panelists talk about you know the opportunity that that, that arises um from tackling the, the um systematic issues around um, diversity particularly within financial services frankly mm -hmm. and only 1.3 percent of the entire investment industry 69 trillion in aum is um, is managed by diverse fund managers, um, but there was broad acknowledgement you know, about the need for far more inclusive uh, investment investment practices. And then on the on the circular economy, I think the biggest thing, you know, and that's that's probably where that comment came from around, you know, the the usage of um, mm. Earth's resources, you know, over, by over four times that you you alluded to, Andy. Um, I think many people were just surprised, really, at some of the statistics that are talked about here. Um, you know, whether it's you know what's happening with food, whether it's what's happening with with fashion. You know, we're going to need to produce more food in the next forty years to support a population of nearly ten billion people than we've produced in the history of mankind. You know, so that has huge impacts on supply chains, on natural resources, on infrastructure on you know diet um all of these sort of then downstream downstream effects um but it was it was really a, a great a great session so thanks for joining us no it was great and it was great to be invited i mean you know there was it was a really interesting uh, series of sessions you know and it's obviously the last one was this week um but it's and it's great just to be able to engage and get different perspectives and we had, you know, your colleague uh, Anastasia Amoroso, uh, you know, head of thematic investing in the US, uh, speaking with us at New York Climate Week, you know, talking about sustainability. And, um, you know, so uh, one of the things that she, she was referring to, and this is something that you know, I go back a little while, you know, things were opposite in 2019, they're opposite in, as much in 2020. But she was talking about the, the fact that talking about sustainability, that not, not it just being the right thing to do, um, but it made the right sense for the portfolio. You know, because that's where the returns are, she said. And I've often been at conferences where I said this is a great convergence of self and social interest. Yeah. Now, you know, presumably you'd agree with that, or you just have. <laughs> but um, you know, what, what, what you, in terms of from your perspective, what do you think are the roles of or the importance of the role of 
private wealth financing sustainability and private wealth you know financing these issues the triumphant that you said about climate change and diversity in the circular economy yeah i i it's an interesting it's an interesting question uh, andy because i, I think we've been on a journey you know the 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 history of of private wealth vis-a-vis sustainability esg you know was was born of the the rather um simple exclusionary a- approach and, and has evolved into so exclusionary i mean armaments tobacco alcohol gaming um uh, gambling that that sort of thing um and has evolved into something um you know much more active in and um conscious in in its in its approach i think that the role of private wealth to, to towards this agenda is is going to be huge um the the you know there's a, there's a broader i think there's a broader disruption in our industry that, that that's happening um really you know driven by some secular you know macro trends around clients around technology around regulation and and that's you know certainly um driving a you know at, at and at having an impact around how the industry is needing to address some of its legacy issues and and to become fit for purpose in terms of you know a wealth manager you know or a, a bank for the future and and i think one of the the big trends um you know we we're calling it an investing mega trend is going to be sustainability and esg and so the 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 importance of of how the industry evolves to match that demand i think is going to be is going to be huge and and i i recently saw a piece of research that that talked about esg investing as being the most significant development in in money management since the the, the creation of the exchange the exchange traded fund um the first one of which was hmm. in 1991 i think listed in canada and today we're at some 7000 odd 5 5.5 trillion in in assets there's been huge growth and there's been um a lot of a growing pains it, it it's similar really towards you know the world of private finance uh, you know or wealth management and sustainability in ESG in that you you see really very strong growth i, I mean assets globally you know are, are somewhere around 35 40 or trillion and have grown 34% over the last few years to get there andy and and when i think you have that level of growth there are there's a, a certain degree of, of of growing pains and and that's i think the world that we're really still in a little bit that you know the industry hasn't materially matured yet you know we've mm. got really an alphabet soup of of definitions a multitude of different standards issues around data um divergent regulatory regimes and all of these sort of things that still you know mean that this is um reasonably nascent in its in its evolution which present both big challenges for for how you know the industry needs to needs to approach you know this but but also great opportunity as well i, I you know i think in and, and i think there is a difference between the institutional and the and the private or, or the retail you know institutional investors account for something like 75% of all global esg aum but more recently the the retail investor base has been growing 
you know, far more quickly, I think, as, as awareness, you know, really starts to, to ramp up from some of the things we, we, we talked about earlier. Hmm. And talking about ramping up, actually, Oliver, um, actually, while you, you were talking about the, the 400% of uh, Earth's resources, which would mean that Earth's overshoot day, I did the I was speaking, I did the work, it was 22nd of August this year, and that would mean it accelerating to, and no irony here, to the 1st of August by 2050. That's how rapidly we'd be right. consuming our resources. And you mentioned as well, it's not 1.5 degrees that, you know, we, we're trying to, well, we are trying to get to 1.5 degrees, but at the moment, the trajectory is 3.5 degrees. So there's a, a real need for quite an acceleration of, of, of wealth to, you know, of capital to go into this space. And in the private wealth, we've talked, I've seen the research, and I think it was originally JP, not David, it was, it was, um, Merrill Lynch it was last year, sort of the, the $30 trillion transfer, talking about the, across the generations in the private wealth area, and the, you know, to, from the, into the millennials' hands, being a driver for this. How important do you think that transfer of wealth across the generations is going to be? And do you think it can happen quickly enough? You know, can we wait for the transfer? Yeah, it's... I bet. Can we wait? No, would be the short answer. That, that, that's, that's not my view. I mean, I think if, if you look at the science, I mean, the IPCC, Andy, is, is 2,000 of the world's most preeminent climate scientists uh, who, who are effectively saying time is up. Um, CO2 stays in the atmosphere for over 100 years. To achieve the, the level that we're talking about, you know, you're, you're going to need to go net negative. So, you know, I think... I think we need to we need to recognise that to, to to even to achieve two degrees to have a two thirds chance of doing that we need we're going to need to peak this year and then reduce CO two emissions by twice the rate that we've grown them in the last ten years. So I, I think the opportunity you know of waiting is 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 gone. We collectively as a um, have dithered on 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 this, and you know we'll. we'll uh, you know the, the the impact on on you know society, financial assets, etc. Is, is broad, and maybe that's something we can talk about a little bit later on. But I, I think that from the, the positive effect of this this wealth transfer, and you you are right, it, it's from baby boomers down. It, it's going to be the biggest transfer of intergenerational wealth we, we've ever seen. The, the real positive of that is that those younger demographics ha- have a very different view on what they want to do you know with their with their wealth and you know you know here it, it's about being intentional uh, and money with meaning profit with purpose it, it's about having an impact and you know they are far more aware and and engaged on on this subject and so the the power of private capital in terms of what it can bring to facilitate and finance that transition you know will be huge as as you know this wealth is inherited and and directed in a very different way and and i mean 80 i think i i think i quoted some of this you know in 87% of millennial respondents um in a in a survey um you know noted the the importance of esg factors when when making their investment you know decisions it was 64% for women you know so so mm. this is it, it's going to be it's going to be important now we we i think the un estimates some 90 odd trillion is needed to make the sdgs you know a reality i think that the goal was by 2030 you know so you know the world of of private wealth can play a a really important part but 
at, at, at its essence, Andy, this is not a, a money or technology issue. It's an institutional capability and political will. And, and policy is the piece that's really got to come to the fore yesterday. I, I really mean yesterday to, mm. to, to, give, to give us a chance of, of, of being successful. Yes, we can't act quick enough then, really. I mean, time travel would be, yeah, yeah sorry, sorry, a bit flippant, but, you know, would be a helpful uh, tool at the moment. But and you've just come to a point there when you were talking about the generations, about, you know, we can't wait for the transfer, but you said about making an impact, actually. And actually, it was something I did want to, uh, the opportunity to ask you about today. Mm. Um, you know, given given your role on the philanthropy governance committee of jp morgan uh, and others in that in our experience we've you know we did our research and we, we discovered that you know particularly in the private wealth space there was sort of to use the analog like a transitioning from philanthropy to impact to sustainability it was like a is a seamless or as a, as a spectrum of uh, of different approaches in that respect, do you? We've, we've also had research that says investors, when they actually put their capital to work, they need to make a return. And return, you know, and capital preservation is, is fundamentally uh, the key priority. Do you find there's any uh, juxtaposition there with the priorities, or do you, how do you reconcile that desire for impact yeah, with the historic sort of? Sorry, sorry. No, I, I mean, look, it it it, um, it relates to what we were just we were just talking about, really, Andy. The the, the you know the the, the historical um, approach to this was was um, you you talk about charity and philanthropy was probably where, I mean, from a private wealth perspective, where most people, if they were interested in this space, would would you know would would approach it. Um, and there are some statistics that you know show, nonetheless, that it was a very small, a very small amount. Of, so, of all charitable giving uh, in the UK, I think outside of of, of the lottery, um, some three four percent goes towards climate and the environment. So it's a it's a tiny proportion. When and and you know the contrast there for me versus the need is is truly you know is truly shocking. What's been fantastic as we talked about at the conferences, as you know, is that your ability actually now to make an, a, a difference through your financial assets mm. as opposed to in your charity and your philanthropy is is meaningful. The, you know, the, there was a view that this was, was done, you know, where um, you wanted to align your portfolio to your principles, you know, for those who, as I said, were, were aware and, and, and interested in approaching their wealth from a different perspective. The reality, I think now, I would go so far as to say that this is the future. And, and um, you would have heard me talk about this at, at the summit. I, I don't see how you can be a long-term investor without looking at, at things through an ESG you know, lens because the mm. financial materiality in terms of the impact of ESG factors on your financial assets, on your investment portfolio, are just simply going to be too, too big. So... You know, it's you know, it's been really interesting to see that journey from sort of a simple, you know, writing the check to a more institutional and engaged approach of philanthropy, philanthropy uh, towards the 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 um, intentionality of a of an approach to one's you know wealth um, into you know um, this ability actually now to 
invest in a way I would suggest, and I think the data is is very strong now, particularly this year, uh, in a way that is actually more efficient and, and generates better risk-adjusted returns than not investing in, in ESG and, and sustainability. And now the, the impact space that you, you, you mentioned, you know, that's sort of right on the the higher end of what I would call the engaged end of the spectrum of, of, of this, because, you know, there the, you, you are, um, people are often taking a very specific approach to, towards what they're, what they're doing with their impact capital, you know, the, the, and for, for clarity's sake, Andy, you know, we, we, we really think about this space as, as having sort of four pillars that the traditional exclusionary approach ESG integration that's something that's much more active where you're incorporating you know these factors into your investment approach thematic you know which touches on obvious areas around say renewable or clean tech or you know those sorts of um, themes uh, and then the final piece is, is is impact investing but there I would suggest even though um CDC, which was, I think, the world's first DFI and, and mm-hmm. talks about themselves as being the world's largest impact investor, have been doing this for some 70-odd years. I mean, <laughs> it's a younger industry than ESG and sustainability, about $500 billion in, in assets. Again, similar challenges uh, around, you know, the approach, standardization, reporting data, how do you measure impact, you know, sort of, you know, impact washing, you know, a lot of people are trying to raise assets because this is seen as trendy. Um, so there are there are challenges uh, with this space that I think people need to be aware of as they go into it. But I think it does play a really important role, and it and it tends to be sort of you know uh, that last pillar that's much more on the as I said the higher engagement end of the of the of the spectrum of 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 approaches. Mm. And. and- some really interesting points there and in fact that whole topic could be another session in its own right but um you talk about engagement and that need to invest in the long term but also you know the point that a lot of this is you know has been for the long term already but that um that perspective that long-term perspective is something that's come up as a common theme throughout um sort of our our discussions and you talk about policy uh, earlier um and it was i think it was on a it was on one of the, the New York week with your colleague Anastasia, where Guy Hand remarked that he'd like to see, you know, he'd, he'd happily see eight percent eight percent returns over twenty five years rather than fifteen over five, you know, and right. uh, well, you know, and but yeah, he was sort of just using some numbers to make the point there. But we were talking about the appropriate fund and private wealth structures and how one would possibly look to extend time horizons. From your perspective, because I know that you've, you know, you've got you've got a little bit of background uh, in the, in this area too, as well, in terms of the structure and reporting which you touched on. But the time horizon um, is that consistent with the client view? You know, how would you reconcile? We can. How do you think we can reconcile his horizon point? Obviously, with you know, when Mark Kearney yeah. first brought it to us, he, he talks about the tragedy of the horizons and horizons, we, it's, yeah. it's matching the two, isn't it? So. Sorry, apologies for the Well, listener. no, no, look, um, uh, a guy is a, a very sensible man. I, I'd quite happily take 8% over 25 years, um, you know, too. So com- compounding low volatility returns is one of the best mm. way of generating wealth over the long term. So, um, the, you know, here for me, what, what jumps out from your question, Andy, is, is really sort of the the role of alternatives in, you know, in in this agenda in driving capital towards 
um, you know, these needs and, and in providing an opportunity, really, I think, for uh, investing in some of these secular shifts that, that, that we're seeing. Um, I think, you know, you, you, you talk about can you reconcile them? I mean, there are some obvious things to be aware of. The asset liquidity mismatch, so you need, one needs to be mindful in the percentage that they allocate to these longer-term investment vehicles of their overall balance sheet um, mm. because they, they are investing for a long-term time horizon. But the really interesting thing about uh, that, of course, is, as um, most people will probably have a sense of, is, is you have a, an opportunity to access what often we refer to as the illiquidity premium, you know, which is this notion mm. of um, excess returns comes from... from you know, locking up mm-hmm. money for, for, for longer term and, and the value of alternatives, both in a portfolio construct in a lower return world in terms of our view at JP Morgan is, is, is only increasing. And I also think that the role that they play in, in this is, is, is equally increasing. You tend to see, you know, a, a greater dispersion of returns, you know, in, in these areas and, you know, the, the top quartile really deliver outsized returns, but it's about mm. identifying them and accessing them. And then if you can do that, you tend to see, you know, really great, what we call persistency in that return generation or in that outperformance, you know, profile. But the availability of, of solutions in this space in, in alternatives is, you know, limited. But what I think is really interesting about the, the horizon piece is that sustainable investing at its essence, you know, at its essence is about capturing, you know, longer term secular growth trends. And, and you know, this is a way of, of aligning your time horizon uh, with, you know, those those trends and, and giving them time to, to play out. I, I mean, I think we talked a bit about food before. I mean, I think global food is an interesting example. Um, if you think about the challenge, the global food supply chain, by some estimates, Andy, is, is responsible for over a, you know, a quarter of all global greenhouse gas, em- gas emissions and consumes some 70-odd percent of, of global fresh water. At the same yeah, time, at the same time, you know, there's there's going to be substantial increase in, in global food production, some 60-odd percent by 2030 to meet the population growth that I talked about and the demand that's coming from that. And, and as you get an increase, you know, ever-increasing middle class, their dietary requirements change. They tend to eat more protein. That requires far more resources in terms of the input and, 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 and. Well, the response from, from the angle that we're talking about has been innovation in creating plant-based foods, right? Which have grown some 29, 30-odd percent over the last few years in alternative protein, you know, now represents, you know, a several billion dollar uh, market and, and expected mm. to have a CAGR of double digit from for, for the next substantial number of years, frankly. So you, you've got a challenge, you've got how um, ag tech and, and the industry is sort of yeah, trying to innovate. And then there's an investment opportunity that, that comes from that. And, and venture capital is really, uh, private equity is really being, you know, a substantial backer of some of this innovation and, and disruption to the agricultural industry with things like you know, vertical farming or plant-based protein. Uh, and you've seen huge amounts of capital uh, being raised, reaching some seven, eight odd billion, I think it was by the end of 18 or 19, over some 800 odd deals in the space. So that represents, a, I think, a, a really interesting dynamic for people to think about your point around 
you know, horizon and, and how to how to reconcile the need and, and the opportunity with the vehicle that you choose. And I would just, I would probably close on that one by overlaying to say, you know, there has been a, a dynamic really over the last decade around public to private. You've seen this broader global de-equitization of, yeah. of public equity, frankly, Andy, where there are far less listed equities in the US than there were 10 years ago. Companies are staying private for twice the length of time uh, that they used to. You've had share buybacks and, and you're taking you know, further stock and the attractiveness of being in the public domain as a CEO or as, you know, is, is obviously a bit more challenging. So you know, the, the value creation that's coming from the private domain and how you access that is, you know, is is really key. Uh, I, you know, we're very fortunate at JP Morgan. You know, we've got a, you know, a global team of truly expert, you know, resources, capability, experience who, who do this, and and we've managed to deliver, you know, four and a half percent per annum net of fees outperformance through our um, our private platform versus public equity since two thousand and six, and and that's the type of opportunity that can that can come from 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 this area. Well, it would be <laughs> so nice to have had a piece of that, Oliver. I say, I may, if I may say, that sounds that's amazing. I mean, that's uh, I think you've covered off. It's, it's such a, a comprehensive list of, of, of uh, subjects there. Without without answer, but it was a complicated. I was, I was going to ask you. I just look conscious of of, of time for us here, here today, and I'm, so if, I was going to ask you one final question. Apologies about but very fairly quickly, which is whether institutional investors are in when it comes to climate change specifically are, are aware of the, the differences between you know, transition risk, physical risk, stranding of assets. Is it questions that you are finding more and more people are asking? You know, you talked about 74% wanted to invest in this space a year ago, but they didn't know how. Are you finding the level of understanding and depth of understanding higher at this time, or is it, are we still at baby steps in that area with clients? No, I, I think I think that's really I think that's really increased, and the institutional investors being at the very front of that. I think that you know there is a, there is there is going to be a number of risks to um, companies you know, from this, whether that's the risks in terms of the physical manifestation of climate change. Whether that's the liability that comes, uh, extreme weather events, think about the impact on the insurers, you know, really, truly exponential claims uh, made over the last few years, Um, or indeed those at risk from the transition, sort of notion of leaders and laggards, um, uh, you know, impact around cost of capital and and, and these sorts of things. But I mean... you know, our own experience as an organization, Andy, I think points to that, that there has been more broadly in, in the, the world of, of listed companies, you know, institutional investors have, I think, played a very important role in challenging companies around their practices and, and where are they on this agenda and, and what are they doing? And I, I if you in, forgive the slight com- commercial for a moment, but I mean, I, I feel... You know, very proud that the JP Morgan has tried to to take a a front-footed approach on that. Uh, Jamie Dimon uh, chaired the business roundtable that came up with the announcement um, around the, a need to move to to a multilateral approach mm-hmm. to stakeholder capitalism. Uh, and and you know, we've we've equally, I think, moved very strongly away. From the, the role that we've played historically in the, you know, oil and, and, and energy space into, you know, one that's really on on the front foot around this agenda. Um, you know, I mentioned our commitment around, 
you know, repositioning existing portfolios in the oil and gas and electric power and automotive, you know, sectors, um, you know, so that we, we're, we're trying to improve carbon intensity in line with the goals of Paris, establishing interim emission reduction target for 2030 with the goal, but of achieving net zero across our operational construct, you know, we're already going to be at 100% renewable energy as an organization this year, advocating for market-based carbon policy, you know, by joining the Climate Leadership Council. You know, we've joined in the Climate Action 100 to contribute, you know, nearly 2 trillion of our AUM towards enhanced stewardship voting and company engagement in terms of asset management business. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not providing project finance or any other forms of asset-specific financing towards coal power. We're same in, in terms of not providing lending or capital markets or advisory services to companies mainly involved in, in coal and fossil fuels and, and phasing all of that out by 24 and then getting on the front foot by financing you know, green and, and greening finance at the same time. We're now the number one uh, global issuer and underwriter of, of green bonds and you know, by virtue of our size, that the world's biggest green bank. So, um, you know, I think it's a it's a really interesting time. I'm not sure that that would have necessarily happened, though, if we hadn't have seen, you know, public interest grow, if we hadn't have seen policy grow, and if we hadn't have seen particularly the role of the institutional investor in advocating for this. Mm. Well, I mean, that's uh, I think that's a, a fairly good a good point to stop there because I think we we are actually out of time. So, and it's a it's a fulsome commitment. Uh, from the institution of JP Morgan, uh, you know, the announcement you referred to on the 6th of August about aligning with the Paris goals um, was was a, was a major uh, sort of a um, significant event, I think, in the, in the realms of the, the sector. And, you know, just the history of what you've gone through there is, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very cool um you know, very impressive track record of commitments and, and, and movement. It just one final point. We obviously yeah, it nearly yeah. a year ago since we were well, a year ago. It would have been it's a year to when we we're all sort of off off to Glasgow. We would have been in a couple of weeks' time commenting about how grey and overcast it is in Glasgow this time of year. All that taken forward, is there anything you hope to to achieve over the next year to move into COP twenty six? Yeah, I think it's it's it's. I mean, the great thing, Andy, about the now on this is that we really, everyone has an opportunity to make an impact. Not everyone can do everything, but every one of us can do something, whether that's with our pensions, whether that's with our ICES, whether that's, you know, with our our daily habits, whether that's, you know, the role that we play in a company that we work at, whether that's so, so I I just think the next 10 years are going to be are going to be so key. And COP is a major milestone in that one, obviously. Um, but but 2021 is also going to be really the year where a lot of policy and regulation becomes comes to, to the fore and, and becomes mainstream. So um, the EU particularly is at the vanguard of that with their EU Green Deal and, and taxonomy and, and disclosures and, and the requirement to, to actually make ESG part of your suitability and advice framework. And, and for the first time at COP, you know, we've got a dedicated private finance agenda and private finance track, of course, led by um, Mark Carney himself. And that, I think, mm. will be a great opportunity for the industry to to engage. Uh, Mark has been, uh, I mean, I, I would argue up there with Sir David Attenborough is one of the most influential on 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 addressing, you know, these, these issues. So I think it's going to be a huge opportunity mm. 
um, for the industry, um, you know, to to um, continue to make the progress that, that we absolutely have to have to make. Um, yeah. So I think ne- next year will be really important, you know, in that. Yeah, and I think that's a that's a great that's a great end point there in terms of going forward for the year. And I tend to agree that I think Mark and he's possibly had even more impact than David Atten, particularly in the finance field. I, I still remember um, wondering what he was thinking, what he was smoking when when I was at Director of Financial Stability, the GFSC, and he made it. He said it was a financial stability issue and climate change. And uh, now, you know, five six years later, it's. Uh, I don't think many people um, dispute that uh, that viewpoint of his. And at Guernsey, we're looking very much looking forward to you know playing a part over the course of the next year in developing um, sort of on the policy and the, and the product front in terms of the private private capital um, agenda. Right. Now, Oliver, yeah. I should say it's yeah. not to blow sunshine. Normally, when I uh, get to this point in, in, in the conversation with podcasts, I'm looking at my notes for the one or two key takeaways that I had from that conversation. And I think the, the main one was we could have spoken for, I think, the rest of the day, actually. It was such a fascinating <laughs> just listening to you there. And I, I, I ran out of space on my notepad of, of those sort of like t- of the key points of listening to you there. Oh, you're, there you're some, being I mean, kind. I'm being kind because there were some absolutely choice sound bites that they were, we were definitely find a way to, uh, to sort of get them out to the market for you but genuinely you're only talking about the, that powerful role of private capital uh, to be a force for global good was for me yeah. is a real takeaway about that and the, you know the fact that you said that you know the, the time is now that the, the, you know the, the urgency to move on this and get this mega trend to work um, and the urgency and the passion that came across from listening to you today is i think if, if we could just have a few more of you uh, that perhaps it wouldn't be quite so urgent as it is now that it had been on the case before. So oh, it just reminds me to say, no, it, and, it's, and it's genuine. I don't, I don't uh, genuinely don't blow sunshine for the sake of it, genuinely. It really was um, really fascinating to, 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 to hear just that passion that you have for this subject in there. And just to, you know, describe the challenge that you know the human race still faces you know it's not it's not done and dusted uh you know we can't rest on our on this one 2021 and beyond there's an awful lot of work to do so thank you once again oliver for your time and your insights today um we have a back catalogue of interviews for those listening and um, panel discussions on the guernsey green finance podcast check them out by searching for guernsey green finance wherever you get your podcasts you can also find us at guernseygreenfinance.org and we are guernsey.com interact with us on twitter and the handle is at gsy green finance and at we are guernsey obviously we've got links to oliver and jp morgan's social media in our show notes so do check these out to hear more from oliver and we'll be back soon with another edition of the guernsey green finance podcast And thank you and take care. Thanks, Andy.